Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of creative storytelling. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today is a very special episode. Why is that? Because this is our 50th episode. Can, oh, you, wow. can you believe it? That's awesome. Yeah, it's a pretty big milestone. We made it. Yeah, so I just want to take this opportunity to say to all our listeners out there, how much we appreciate your listenership. Agreed. I mean, every time we get an email or a submission on the website or people messaging us on Instagram or reviews on uh, different podcast platforms, it really makes my day. Like that's, that's really what makes this whole thing worth it for me. I live to come home and see the childlike glee in your eyes because we got a new five-star review. (laughs) It's awesome. Okay. I enjoy them too. It's always exciting. And the emails. We like the emails too, right? Because that's like the personal messages from the listeners. It's really interesting to hear from you. Yeah, totally. So 50th episode. It's special. What are we talking about today, Jason? We chose a very special topic for our 50th episode. Today we're talking about manga and anime, two of Japan's most well-known and well-loved cultural exports, and saving it specially for this occasion. We've talked about manga a little bit before, but in case you missed it, manga are comics or graphic novels created in Japan, and they tend to conform to the same style that developed in Japan starting in the 19th century, or Mm -hmm. earlier, maybe. Yeah, we'll get into the history. Yeah. Uh, What about anime? Anime is hand-drawn or computer animation originating from Japan. Mm Mm-hmm. So I got some fun stuff about the etymology of those words. Let's hear it. Manga is written with two kanji. We've talked about kanji before. Those are the symbols that make up one of the writing systems in Japanese. So the first kanji, man means whimsical or impromptu. And ga means a picture, a drawing, or a sketch. So manga, impromptu, sketch. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. And I've heard this pronounced in English as either manga or manga, some people say. You heard that before? Yes. And while outside of Japan, in the rest of the world, people use that to refer specifically to Japanese comics. But inside Japan, that word can be used for all sorts of cartoons, comics. You might even call animations manga. Now, the word anime is not written in kanji. Why is that, Paul? Because it's a foreign word. Yeah. Or taken from a foreign word. Yeah. So because it's foreign, it's written in katakana, which is a different writing system in in the Japanese language, because the word actually comes from English, which is kind of weird to think about, that Anime is such a Japanese thing. That word comes from the English language, though. It's a shortened version of the word animation. So in Japanese, they would pronounce it animation, and they shorten it to anime. So pronounced anime in Japanese. In English, people usually call it anime, which is, I think, how we're going to be referring to it in this episode. And again, outside of Japan, the rest of the world uses that to refer only to Japanese animation. But inside Japan... The word anime can refer to all kinds of animation all over the world. So The Simpsons, you might call anime if you were a Japanese person. Yeah. So we're covering these two topics together because manga and anime are very much intertwined. 
and share a very distinct art style and storytelling style. Definitely. There's a lot of anime that are based upon manga, and there's some manga that are based upon animes. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of it flows back and forth between the two. Totally. And I want to point out, I think in the West, a lot of the time, people think of anime as its own genre. But, you know, if you want to get technical about it, manga and anime aren't genres. They're types of media, right? And within those types of media, there are distinct genres that we will get into a little later. So some types of manga and anime are aimed at children, but a lot of them can be aimed at adult audiences. You can have anything from Pokemon, which is clearly aimed at a younger demographic, all the way up to stories with very adult themes, whether it's sexual or filled with violence or horror. or I mean, some of this stuff gets super psychological or philosophical. So in Japan, manga and anime are consumed by all age groups. And it's totally normal to see even like a middle-aged salaryman on the train reading manga. Yeah, it's popular train read. Yeah. Because it's quick to get through a book and uh, not a ton of words. So you're bumping around on the train. You can still follow along. Sure. Anime and manga are major industries in Japan. I believe they sell millions and millions of manga every year in book form. And then there's the magazines too. Who knows how many of those they sell. And anime, I didn't know this until I did some research here. There's over 430 production studios in Japan that make anime or work on anime. Yeah. That's so many. It's a lot. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. One thing that blew my mind that I saw, as of 2016, 60% of the world's animated television shows came from Japan. Wow. 60% of all animated shows in the world. That's amazing. That shows you how big and important and influential the industry is there, I think. For sure. And I mean, as we will see, it's, it's worldwide now. Like this stuff isn't just consumed in Japan, obviously. It's everywhere. Yeah. There's anime and manga fans all over the world now. Mm -hmm. well, let's talk about the history of manga and anime. As we said, they're intertwined, so kind of going to try to cover both of them at the same time. But which one came first? Manga. Clearly. Because it's just drawings. Yep. What's the oldest thing you found relating to manga? Um, some scrolls from the 12th and 13th century have an art form on them that's supposed to be, I guess you could say, like proto-manga form. Yeah, there was a Buddhist high priest, Toba Sojo, who made a series of drawings around that time called Choju Giga, Scrolls of Frolicking Animals. This is believed to be the first manga in Japan. And that blew my mind. I mean, we've talked about so many different things that started with Buddhism, you know. I did not expect manga to be one of those things. This Buddhist high priest was the first manga artist. That's awesome. Yeah, I suppose the monks did a lot of art. I don't know how many artists they had in society in the 12th century. I guess that's a good point. In a lot of cultures, like very early art was often very religion focused. Yeah, the religious temple or church or whatever would be the hub of writing and learning and art. Yeah. Because they had the time and money, I guess, to pursue those. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and it, if you see these scrolls, it kind of makes sense that it might be the very beginnings of manga because they have these anthropomorphized animals doing human-like things. Kind of reminds me of like Warner Brothers or Disney stuff. Like you got these animals running around that can talk and do human-y things, you know? Yeah. So in the Edo period between 1603 and 1867, there was a style of paintings called tobae, which became popular. And this was based on the style of that monk, Toba Sojo. So there was a book called Toba Ehon, a book of drawings in that style that told a story about ordinary people with a focus on comedy. So there, we're starting to, it's starting to sound like a comic book sort of thing, right? Yeah. But the word manga didn't come into common usage until the end of the 1700s, and picture books started coming out using that word in the title. So at least one historian believes that this period is when the world's first official comic books, I suppose, were created. And from what I saw, they seemed to have been fairly similar to modern manga. They had humorous, satirical, and romantic themes, all common things in modern manga. And Paul, I even saw that there was a book called Hokusai Manga. Does that ring a bell? Did you see anything about that? I saw a couple pictures. Did the name Hokusai ring a bell? No. So you've, you've seen that painting, The Great Wave Off Kanagawa, right? Super, super famous painting of like this very stylized kind of blue wave. Yeah. That was painted by Hokusai. Okay. Super famous Japanese artist. So he made a book of manga. But this one wasn't really like a modern manga because the sketches weren't connected to each other in a story. But still, you know, manga-like sketches. That's cool. Mm -hmm. So in the late 1800s, of course, Japan was opened up to the West with the Meiji Restoration. And at this point, I mean, a lot of Western ideas started flooding into Japan, including Western-style satirical cartoons. But I saw, it seems like some historians disagree on how much the West influenced Japan's style, and how much of it was just a continuation of Japan's traditions? It's a vigorous debate. Yeah. And uh, people on both sides are dug in their heels. And my completely amateur opinion, I think it's probably quite a bit of both. There was definitely some defined Japanese characteristics going back to at least the 12th century. But I think there's definitely some Western influence that uh, became pretty prominent in it as well. Yeah, it seems like it would be hard to argue that there was no influence, but there's a big debate over how much influence yeah. came from the West. Disney movies seem to have had an influence, and comic books that American soldiers brought over in World War II also supposedly had an influence as well. So at the beginning of the 1900s, you started to see comic strips in Japanese newspapers. And by the 1930s, comic strips were serialized in magazines and put together into collections that would look a lot like modern-day manga. The earliest commercial Japanese animation dates to 1917. And Japanese anime has continued to increase steadily since then. Mm -hmm. By the 1930s, animation was well-established as a medium in Japan, often used for advertising, educational shorts, and government propaganda. Of course. <laughs> yep. And in America, in 1937, you had Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs coming out, which 
was a huge impact on the animation industries worldwide, really, because it was the very first full-length cell-animated feature film. That's important. Mm-hmm. It had almost created the whole industry. I mean, definitely propelled it forward. Yeah, or created a new segment of it. Mm-hmm. So after World War II, there was an explosion of artistic creativity. Between 1950 and 1969, manga became more and more popular, and two main types started to emerge. And I don't really want to call these genres. There's just more like types that were aimed at specific demographics. So you got shonen manga for boys, and these types of stories usually had a lot of action, humorous plots, maybe some martial arts, robots, science fiction, sports, you know, stereotypical boy stuff. And then shoujo manga was aimed at girls, and that could be anything from historical drama to science fiction, but they would often have more of a focus on romantic relationships or emotions. One interesting thing, at least in my mind, is that when I started reading manga, I of course couldn't read Japanese. So I had no idea what shonen meant or shoujo meant. And I just read all sorts of manga. And I liked a lot of them, whether they were supposed to be meant for boys or girls or adults or whatever. I just liked a lot of them. I had no idea which ones I was supposed to like. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole division of those two groups is kind of a socially conservative construct, you could say, right? Yeah, definitely. If you don't tell people this is manly or this is for girls, I think it goes to show a little bit. People just like whatever they like. Yeah. Now you got me wondering, like, in the 70s, if you were a little boy that was really into shoujo manga, it's just what appeals to you. I wonder if that's something like a shameful secret you would hide from your friends. I could see it. Yeah. Or the other way around. Yeah. Girl liking boys manga and everyone calls her a tomboy and makes fun of her. I mean, even today, you know, I feel like kids sometimes, they have guilty pleasures of like, oh, I like this music artist that, you know, a lot of girls like or whatever. Might not want to tell all your friends about that. Yeah. Kids just don't realize you just have to have the confidence and believe in what you like and people will think it's cool no matter what it is. I totally agree. Like what you like. Who cares what anybody else thinks? They'll think you're cool for it. Even if if they they don't, who cares? Right. They're haters. Forget the haters, man. Anyways. Anyways, where were we? uh, There was one hugely popular manga and anime in the 1950s. That was Astro Boy. About a little boy robot and his adventures. Mm. Kind-hearted robot. And the style from that character design and all the character designs in that really had an effect on the industry moving forward. And part of that is where I think you get the debate of Western influence versus Japanese influence, because the author of that manga was a huge Disney fan. Mm. So the guy that created like the manga that kind of set the standard for all Japanese manga moving forward was a huge Disney fan. Yeah, so also like in this period, in the 50s and 60s, Japanese animators started to adapt and simplify Disney's animation techniques to reduce their costs and streamline the animation process. A lot of significant stuff happened in the 50s and 60s for anime. 
1958, there was a nine-minute animation called Mole's Adventure, or Mogura no Abanchuru, which was the first anime broadcast on TV and the first full-color broadcast. In 1960, Three Tales, or Mitsu no Hanashi, aired, and that was the first anime film ever aired on TV. The first ever anime series aired on TV between 1961 and 1964, something called Otogi Manga Calendar. Seen any of those, Paul? Not recently. Sounds familiar. Really? You think you've watched those? Uh, I mean, not all of them, maybe something. Hmm. I don't think I've ever seen anything that old. It's amazing what you can find on the internet. Yeah, I'm sure they're all out there somewhere. (laughs) So in the 1970s, the popularity of manga continued to grow, and many of them started to get adapted to anime. And it was around this time that they developed some genres that are still very popular today. For example, the giant robot genre. Oh yeah. That was a big one, especially when I was like first getting into anime. Giant robots were everything. Mm-hmm. Less so these days. Still definitely around though. Oh yeah, it's still a genre that gets play. Yeah. So Gundam, I mean, Gundam was one of the very first ones and they're still around and a really big deal. You know, people buy Gundam models and uh, people are really, really into it. Gundam's forever. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Japan's ability to make these franchises that just never end. They do just keep pumping them. Like Pokemon, when we were kids, Pokemon came out in the late 90s, and it's still going strong. There's still like really serious Pokemon devotees. Yeah. I was watching Pawn Stars clips last night, who knows why, and some guy came in with his Pokemon card collection that got valued at... I think like $300,000. What? This guy had half of the 10 rated Charizard first edition cards in circulation in the entire world. Wow. Yeah. He was like a real collector. Like he was going out and buying these things, not just. Oh, yeah. yeah. He didn't just have like his collection from when he was a kid. I mean, this guy was old. Like he played with his kids. Like this came out when his kids were kids Mm. and this guy was already an adult. Yeah. He said his kids moved on to college and he kept playing. Wow. (laughs) I still have a bunch of Pokemon cards from when I was a kid that aren't really worth much. The ones that were worth something I already sold. I'm pretty proud of how how I did. I couldn't believe how much money those things are worth. Yeah. So getting back to it. In the 1980s, anime became more accepted in mainstream Japanese culture and continued to rise in popularity, started to expand to overseas markets through the 1990s and beyond. In 2002, Studio Ghibli came out with a movie called Spirited Away. You may have heard of. Yeah, I've seen it. A good movie. And it was a big deal. It won the Golden Bear at the Berlin International Film Festival And then it won the Academy Award the next year for the Best Animated Feature. So at this point, anime was pretty huge worldwide. Everyone's going to hate me, but Spirited Away is just not my jam. Princess Mononoke? I'm so into that one. Okay. At least you're not talking bad about Ghibli as a whole. That would upset some people. Yeah. Ghibli films for me are a little hit or miss. I really like some of them and others are like, okay, you know, but don't just, just don't hit home for some reason. I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a wide range. Ghibli has put out a lot of very different films. Yeah, there's some similarities, but you're right. Some of the films are just wildly different in content and story. Yeah. Uh, manga also had become pretty huge. In 2006, manga was around a $400 million industry in Japan, and manga books made up 27% of total book sales. Okay, that's impressive. Manga magazines made up 20% of magazine sales. And in the U.S. and Canada manga market, by 2008, they were doing $175 million in annual sales. Wow. Pretty serious. Yeah, that's huge. So these days, of course, anime is huge and solidly a worldwide thing. You can find anime conventions all over the world and a huge, very active fan base. That's for sure. In Japan, they have something called Kamiket, which is a biannual convention sort of thing. They have a summer and winter Kamiket. Kamiket, though, as far as I understand it, it's not for officially released manga or anime. It's for doujinshi, which is self-published mangas. So you go there to buy a bunch of fan-made stuff. Or occasionally artists self-publish some stuff too for various reasons. Yeah, and doujinshi is also a very big thing in Japan. I mean, a lot of these, you know, technically they're made by amateurs. They're not made by these big companies, but they can be really well done and look very professional. Yeah. Some of them use characters that already exist in the way that fan fiction does. And those people purposely only print a small quantity of what they make to avoid copyright problems. Mm. So they're definitely like skirting the copyright laws, but they don't make it like a big enough thing for it to be worth anyone's time, I guess is how it works out. Interesting. But then some of it's just totally original work as well. Cool. Anime is a very diverse art form. And there's distinctive production methods and techniques that have evolved over time. And they've been integrated emerging technologies. So there's a lot of ways to make anime, historically and modern day. Yeah. In the very early days of anime, cutout animation was popular because it was super easy and cheap. And you know, to give you an idea of what this is, if you've seen the first episode of South Park, <laughs> that's a good example of cutout animation. So you, you, know, you just use paper to cut out shapes, put them together into characters, and then you can just move these things around and take pictures to like create each frame of the animation. Pretty easy. It's like stop motion with little cutouts. Yeah. But for most of anime's history, cell animation was the most popular method as it was for most types of animation in the rest of the world as well. So cell animation is pretty cool. It's ingenious. So you got this background layer, right? And the background, you can kind of paint however you want. Like you can make it really detailed and it doesn't matter. It's not going to make things more difficult because nothing needs to move in the background. But for the pieces of the frame that actually need to move in successive frames, you would have cells. So a cell is this transparent piece of plastic, basically, and they would just paint parts of characters or parts of anything that needs to move 
and they would layer those on top of the background. So the background is static, but with each frame you can move these cells around to make it look like things are moving. Pretty awesome. And this saves a lot of time because you don't need to redraw everything for every single frame. You only need to change the parts that are moving. Yeah, and along those lines, anime tends to focus less on the animation of movement and more on the realism of the background and the setting. They use camera effects like panning and zooming where you're just looking at a static image, but it feels like more than that because of the camera tricks and whatnot they're using. Yeah, as the techniques evolved, I mean, it's amazing what you could do with cell animation. Yeah, you mentioned how important the backgrounds are. They're often invented, but they're sometimes based on real locations too, Mm -hmm. where you can go find the picture or the place of where the picture was taken that they drew this background based off of, which is pretty cool. Yeah, there are a lot of people you know, that are real into anime that'll go to Japan and visit these places where locations were used in anime. That sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of those backgrounds are just mind-blowing. You know, I've seen comparisons of like a real place and then the anime background version of that place, and it's like hyper-realistic but sometimes even more beautiful than the real thing, you know? Yeah, definitely. Pretty cool. So we talked about cell animation. In the 1990s, animators started to use CGI, computer-generated images, in conjunction with cell animation. And of course, over time, the use of computers grew more and more, so that now we are firmly in the digital era of anime, you could say. But it's funny, that doesn't mean that everything is created using these like 3D models in a computer. They're still actually hand-drawing frames. They're just doing it in a digital medium. You've seen maybe those tablets where you can uh, draw with an actual like stylus. Yeah. And draw like a digital picture. Yeah. Or people might even be drawing in pencil on paper just for like designing characters and stuff. And then maybe they'll scan that and recreate that in a digital medium or something. But either way, the end product is going to be in a digital form. So I read a little bit about the differences between Western animation, specifically Disney animation, and Japanese animation. So like Paul, you said, the anime puts a lot of emphasis on the art quality. In contrast, Disney emphasizes movement a lot. Another thing I thought was interesting is that in anime, the animation is created before the voice acting. I saw that too. Yeah, in American animation, the voice acting comes first and then they do the animation to line up with that. So I assume when they're making anime in Japan, when they're making the mouth move, they're just like mouthing along and trying to like guess when the mouth should be open and when it shouldn't be based on the lines. I don't know exactly how that's done. It sounds difficult though both for the animators and the voice actors. Yeah, they do do a pretty good job of it seeming to line up. Yeah. Should we talk about character design? I think we have to. Some of the stuff is just so unique. Yeah, and it's a pretty important part of the art style. Yeah, I mean, you can look at a manga or anime character and pretty easily be like, okay, that's an anime character. Mm-hmm even though there's a wide variety of styles. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, we'll talk about uh, 
generalities a little bit here, but what about body proportions? In manga and anime, are these fairly realistic body proportions usually? It totally depends on the manga or anime. Some are, especially fantasy ones, can be just wild body shapes and sizes. And then some more realistic ones are going to be more realistic proportions. Yeah. I would say in general, though, body proportions are at least somewhat realistic. I mean, in animation, artists talk about character size using the head size as a unit, you know? Yeah. So in manga and anime, characters are usually about seven to eight heads tall. It's fairly realistic. Paul, you've heard of chibi, though, right? Yeah, of course. (laughs) What's chibi? Chibi is when they're really short and stubby with really big heads and small bodies. Yeah. I mean, it's a a very specific style. It's supposed to be cute. Yeah. It kind of is. Yeah. It kind of reminds me, if you want to compare it to something in the Western world, it reminds me of like Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. He's got this giant head. Okay, yeah. bitty, bitty body. I never thought of Calvin as chibi style before. <laughs> I but... wouldn't call him chibi, but just for the proportions, yeah, kind of close. That's a good analogy, I'd say. Yeah. I also thought it was funny that uh, that chibi style is also known as SD. I didn't know that. SD stands for super deformed. What? <laughs> uh, I don't know. That, that's just hilarious. Like, that's... Oh, look how deformed this weird little anime character is. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Another very noticeable stylistic attribute of manga and anime characters is the giant eyes, right? Yes, almost always going to be large, emotive eyes. And apparently this all kind of started with this guy named Osamu Tezuka. Did you read about him? Was he the Astro Boy? Yeah, he was the creator of Astro Boy and many, many others. He was prolific. Yeah, he was extremely influential in the development of manga and anime. I saw that he was referred to as the father of manga or even the god of manga. I think I heard him referred to as the Japanese Disney. Mm, that makes sense. And he was influenced by early Western animation characters like Betty Boop. She had very big eyes. Yep. So he developed a style that's basically like the modern anime eye style. <laughs> like he used variable color shading to give the eyes a lot of depth. And the idea was he wanted to create this style that made the eyes able to create the full range of human emotion. So you you can tell a lot just through the eyes, you know, people say it's the window to the soul, right? Yep. So this is a, a super popular style in anime, of course, and is often what people will think of when they think of anime, but not all anime uses that large eye style. It, it really depends on the anime, like Paul said. Yeah. There are some studios, though, that are known for having a really, really exaggerated eye style. Like sometimes they take up like half the character's head. (laughs) Yeah. But some of them do try to keep it a lot more realistic, too. Yeah. Yeah, it varies. So we should probably talk about the hair. Lots of unique colors used. Yeah. Specifically in anime, because manga tends to be black and white. Right. And I'd always wondered about that because... You don't see tons of crazy hair colors in Japan, you know? Right. I've wondered before if it's like the wild hair colors in anime, a reaction to the fact that like almost everyone in Japan is about the same hair color. 
So they like imagine a world where that wasn't the case. And you get all these like silver, purple, pink, wild hair, hair colors. Mm -hmm. It also looks kind of cool. Add some color to the, to the animation. Yeah. Give some personality to the main characters. I've always liked those silver haired girls. Sure. You know, that's just me. That's Paul's type. (laughs) Did you read about where that, the color thing came from though? No, I didn't. I saw. There is a reason for that. It apparently comes from wanting to make manga book covers stand out on the shelves. (laughs) Okay. So like like you said, inside the book, most manga are black and white. But when you're scanning the shelves and you're, oh, what what manga do I want to buy? You see something with this character with bright hair. You're like, oh, that looks interesting. Ah, it catches your eye. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. That's cool. That's that's good. Yeah. Um, In anime, hair can also be really important as a way to emphasize characters' actions. So you'll see a lot of movement in the hair a lot of the time. So like as a character moves around, their hair is kind of following them. Like if a girl with long hair is walking by, it's going to like be flowing behind her. Mm. Or if she makes a quick movement in any direction, like the hair is kind of going to bounce along yeah. with her. It emphasizes Exaggerated their movements. hair movements. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I remember seeing like, guys with almost like poofy afro so they would like emphasize their hair swinging around or whatever yeah okay yeah yeah yeah. i know what you're talking about yeah and those guys i mean anime hair is often like huge and spiky (laughs) you know yeah makes the characters more visually interesting i suppose yeah so in anime there's also a somewhat standardized way of showing emotions And this might be one of the main things about Japanese animation that can seem really unfamiliar to uh, someone from the Western world that's seeing anime for the first time. Yes. It's almost like another language that you have to learn, like a visual (laughs) language. You know what I mean? Yeah. When I first got into anime, the waterfall eyes, (laughs) like it took me a while to get used to that. (laughs) Yeah. Like when a character cries, it's not tears. It's just like water as wide as each eye dripping like all the way down their face, maybe all the way to the ground and forming a pool. Yeah. Like it's super exaggerated crying. And it took me a while to not be like, what is that? You know? Like, yeah. I could tell they were crying, but it was just so much. Now I just think it's normal. Yeah. I mean, you get used to it eventually and you start to, you know, once you start to learn that visual language... It all kind of makes sense. Like, oh, this character is feeling a certain way because they're animated like this, you know? Yeah. The one funny thing, and I I don't know, like, how this is even based in reality, really, but a male character that is uh, getting aroused will often have, like, a nosebleed. And sometimes yeah. it can be super exaggerated to where there's, like, blood just pouring out of their nose, kind of like the waterfall eyes things, but out of their nose. Yeah, yeah, or they'll, like, fall over backwards, blood spurting everywhere out of their nose. <laughs> yeah. like, Does that happen? Like, no, I don't, I don't get where that came from. I think I read once that somehow there was a thought that if you got like really aroused, you could have a hemorrhage or something. And like, that's where the idea came from. But mm. it seems really odd to me. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. Interesting. But it's funny. It's like funny to watch. Yeah. There's the blush, you know, the red cheeks is a very common thing, like mm-hmm. exaggerated red. I've even seen the red like 
goes out past their cheeks. Yeah. Like they're blushing so hard, they're red past their cheeks. Yeah. <laughs> or sometimes like it's not just their cheeks turning red, their entire head or even their entire body will turn red. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it'll like start at the top and just go yeah. like all the way through their whole body. There's the teardrop on the back of the head. Like with- a a sweat drop showing that they're nervous, right? Is yeah, yeah. It's like a nervous type thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's always fun when a character gets really angry or is glaring at somebody else because they take that to the extreme. It's like they'll black out the whole background so you're just seeing this one character and then they kind of grow and their eyes turn into like these glowing red slits. <laughs> like they're, they're turning into a demon kind of. Yeah, yeah. The glare. Mm-hmm. Any other emotion animation things that come to mind? Uh, not any more off the top of my head. I'm sure there's quite a few more out there. Yeah. Yeah. If you watch enough anime, you'll get used to it. Yeah. yeah Start to recognize you'll pick them. them. You'll learn the language. Should we talk about some popular anime genres? Yes. Let's. So, like I said earlier in the history section, there are general categories of anime that are more defined by the demographics that they're aimed at. Like I mentioned, shonen for boys, shoujo for girls. For smaller children, something called kodomomuke. Of course, there are tons of genres aimed at adults, and a lot of those are kind of the same kinds of genres you would see in other forms of media. You got drama, action, mystery, horror, science fiction, romance, comedy, historical stuff. Anything you would see in media from other countries. There's also adult pornographic anime that you can find. No. It exists, believe it or not. Care for what you Google, people. (laughs) Yep. Uh, So this stuff is labeled R18 in Japan, known internationally as hentai. You know what that word hentai means? Pervert. Yep. So a person can be a hentai. You know, you can talk about hentai anime. Yeah, I guess a thing can be... Hentai. Mm-hmm. And anime also very often blends genres. Yeah. You won't find a lot of anime that are only one genre. There, there are so many different tropes and stuff that can be grouped together in different ways to tell all these different stories. You know, new genres are being created all the time. Like, it's really creative. I feel like that's one of the things that surprised me when I first discovered anime is just there's so many stories that are unlike anything I'd, I'd ever seen in America, you know? Yeah. I think that's got to tie into manga and how manga is just made by an artist just saying, hey, I want to make this story. Yeah. So there's just so much creativity because one person is driving a story. So you get these people that just come up with these genius, like, new stories. And a bunch of people kind of copy them later on, but they're always, like, paving new trails yeah one of the most popular i think anime genres right now is isekai which is other world or other dimension something like that basically where a character gets transported to another world somehow that's just become popular in like the last 10 years i don't even remember that being a thing when i was a teenager watching anime really and now it's like insanely popular now it's like almost seems like the number one genre huh i i didn't realize it was more of a recent thing but honestly when you look at 
the current reality, it makes a lot of sense that those kinds of stories would be popular. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I'm out. I'm out of the real world. Let's yeah. go live in a fantasy land. Yeah, it's a form of escapism. I think it ties in with computer games, too, because you kind of get to, like, live in another world while you're, like, playing video games. Mm-hmm. So people are, like, imagining being transported to a video game-like world and what yeah. it would be like actually living there yeah and there are even anime in the isekai genre where that literally happens somebody is pulled into a video game and they live in there yeah yeah uh another very popular genre that i mentioned earlier is mecha you know the giant robots you got gundam uh neon genesis evangelion is a little more recent but super super popular anime in that genre Mm -hmm. so good yeah Still waiting on that fourth movie. Never going to come out. I'll be, I don't know, is the fourth Evangelion remake going to come out first or the next uh, Game of Thrones book? <laughs> yeah, they keep telling the same story over and over again. Yeah, it was slightly modified. Yeah, just got to perfect it before they actually move on, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Another very popular genre, I think this is one of my favorites, is called Slice of Life. Yeah, I'm quite fond of that as well. So you got stories of just everyday life with normal people. But like I said, genres can be mixed and matched. So a lot of times you can have a slice of life story that also involves magic or, you know, unusual supernatural things happening. Or it could be slice of life and romance or and a school or and all sorts of other things. Yeah. But the thing that makes it slice of life is just more of a focus on the everyday. And I don't know. To me, it just is kind of relaxing and like grounding. You know what I mean? Like there's there's not this huge storyline a lot of times that you need to keep track of. It's just like, oh, this is, you know, I'm just watching some friends hang out and stuff. It's chill. Yeah, definitely. But I think my very favorite genre, and before I did this research, I didn't realize that there was a name for this genre or that it even could be called a genre. Okay. There's something called Yashike. Oh, what's that? This is healing anime. So, huh. you know, I said I liked Slice of Life because it's relaxing and calming. Yeah. Yashike is just anime that's soothing to watch. Like heartwarming, wholesome stuff. Interesting. I guess for me, this is sort of my escapism thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And again, this type of anime can overlap with a lot of other genres. I mean, Slice of Life and Yashike go together a lot of the time, but that healing aspect is relaxing. Nobody's getting in big arguments or having like terrible things happen to them in Yashike, you know? Yeah, okay. Like uh, that camping anime. Yeah. They just go camp and have fun and hang out. I love that one. Yuru Camp, it's called. That's the episode. They just go camp, they start a fire, they eat some stuff, they go to bed, episode over. <laughs> and like, it's, it's relaxing. Yeah, heartwarming. Yeah. Just good friends out in the woods, enjoying nature together. Good stuff. Paul, do you have a favorite genre? No, I don't. You just watch anything? Eh, not necessarily anything, but I watch quite a wide variety. There's always some that I like and some that I don't from every genre, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how personal anime tastes can be. Yeah, yeah. But there really is something for everyone, you know? I think I've gotten picky over the years. I've seen enough anime that, like, I've seen a lot. It it either needs to be really good or needs to be maybe something I haven't seen before. 
to like really get me interested these days, I feel like. Yeah. But they come along. They come along from time to time, one that hooks me. Any names you want to throw out that you've been into lately? Uh, the Rising of the Shield Hero is a really good one. I really enjoyed that. Hmm. What kind of genre is that? Uh, isekai. It's transported to another world. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Uh, do you want to tell everybody about Etchy? <laughs> Etchy. I mean, it's not hentai, mm-hmm. but it's close. <laughs> cl- yeah, it's like it's like a little perverted, but it like doesn't cross a certain line. Yeah, like there's probably not going to be sex. Yeah, or nudity. Like they're not. But there might be cleavage or... Or short shorts. <laughs> yeah, sensual situations or something like that. Yeah. So I feel like etchy and hentai are the genres that, for a lot of people, give anime a not-so-great reputation. Like, people that aren't really familiar with all the types of anime out there, they might think that a lot of it is in these genres. But it's not. No, they're just genres like, like anything else. But yeah, etchy got sexy, naughty... Risque situations, flirty stuff happening, but not pornographic. Yeah. What about harem? Uh, that would be where a character, the main character, is surrounded by a whole bunch of single attractive people. Generally, it's a guy surrounded by a bunch of really pretty women all throwing themselves at him for different reasons. But it can be a woman sometimes. Yeah, definitely. It goes both ways. And you can kind of see how this genre became popular because it's, I mean, the guy or girl in the middle of this is like a totally average, normal person. The perfect avatar for somebody to insert themselves into the story, you know, and imagine themselves in this world. There's a lot of anime where they go out of their way to make sure that you know that the main character is very, very average in every way possible. Yeah, just like you. (laughs) A lot of animes and mangas open with like an internal monologue from the main character like, oh, I'm just an average college student who isn't really great looking and I get decent grades. Like they just go so far to make it like I'm so normal. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's really funny how obvious and overt they make that. Very common trope. Yeah. So this genre harem, like it it sounds like it would go hand in hand with etchy or even hentai, but this can also be mixed in with all sorts of other genres. And it, it, there's that potential for romance but that's not really what it's about. Like they don't go full on, you know, oh, you're dating all these different girls or something. It's more just the idea that you're surrounded by pretty people and that's just, it makes your life interesting, you know? Yeah. Speaking of that, actually, the rising of the shield hero is Isekai, but you could also say it's Harem too. Because he gets transported to this other world and becomes the shield hero and he's got to form a party. And of course, his whole party ends up being eligible women that all like him. (laughs) You know, he gets no action throughout the whole thing, but that's not really the point, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like Harem and Isekai go together a lot. It's not etchy at all. It's not. They just clearly like him but nothing ever happens yeah but you could say that both of those are very much escapist kind of ideas yes (laughs) yeah they go hand in hand in that way Yeah. yeah 
All right, so let's talk a little bit about where you can go if you want to experience anime stuff in Japan. Paul, what what is the mecca for anime and manga? Akihabara. Yeah. You got multiple anime and manga stores, figurine stores. You even have doujinshi stores selling the fan-made mm-hmm. manga, which is crazy. There are towers where each floor is selling like a different category of anime stuff. Yeah, they're like seven or eight stories tall. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Uh, there's the maid cafes. There's just everything. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, Akihabara is a part of Tokyo. Yes. And yeah, Otaku Heaven, it is commonly called. Yep. We've mentioned before, Otaku is a person that's really into something. And in Akihabara, that can be technology. They got a lot of computer stores and stuff, but a lot, lot of the stuff there is focused on anime and manga. Definitely. There's also some Pokemon centers. Yeah. Throughout Japan that sell everything Pokemon. Mm-hmm. Seem to be cool places to go if you're into that. They are. I went to one in Osaka. If you want to come home with tons of Pokemon merchandise, <laughs> go to a Pokemon Center. <laughs> um, if you're into Studio Ghibli, there's the Ghibli Museum where you can learn a lot about animation techniques. You can see pre-production sketches. If you've seen a lot of Ghibli films, you'll recognize a lot of stuff. That's pretty cool. And it's a very whimsical place. I talked about it a little bit in my recap episode because I was there in, uh, on my recent trip. Very cool place. Uh, and there, there are so many manga and anime museums all over Japan. It's kind of crazy. Uh, yeah. Another one I've been to is in Ishinomaki, which is a fairly small city. But they have the Ishinomori Manga Museum that commemorates the works of a guy named Shotaro Ishinomori. He was a manga artist from that area and was super influential in manga and anime. He created a series called Super Sentai. And even if you haven't heard of Super Sentai, you've probably heard of Power Rangers, which is kind of what Super Sentai was turned into. He also made something called Kamen Rider, if you're familiar with that. And this museum is super cool. Even from the outside, when I first saw this place, it's like it looks like a spaceship. It's this big white discs sort of thing like propped up on these legs and Ishinomori actually was one of the cities that was really hit hard in the 2011 tsunami and that museum was one of the only buildings that survived like right on the coast wow yeah there are so many anime and manga museums that i was gonna like write a few of the popular ones down and then i was just like there's too many if you're into it just go look You'll find you'll probably find some near where you're staying in Japan. Yeah. Even in Tokyo, there are multiple museums inside Tokyo. I, I actually have a list of them still. Can I just mention a few? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Suginami Animation Studio in Ogikubo Award of Tokyo. Uh, they go into how anime is made. They talk about its history and even the future of anime. The Toei Animation Museum in Oizumi, Tokyo. Uh, if you're in Kyoto, they have an international manga museum there with over 300,000 items, whatever that means. I'm not sure what, what items means. But yeah, tons of them. Google can help you find all sorts of stuff. And another thing I wanted to mention is if you want to learn about how anime is made while watching anime, there's a series called Shirobako. 
You know anything about this, Paul? I don't know if I remember that one specifically, but there's a number of manga and anime about people who make manga and anime. Hmm. I'm assuming that's one of them. Yeah, I hadn't seen any other ones, but this is a fairly recent one. And yeah, it's all about the production of anime. Like It focuses on this group of friends that went to Tokyo to get into the anime industry. It's pretty interesting. Like It seems pretty realistic. So Cool. Yeah. Got anything else, Paul? That's all I got. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed episode 50. Uh, actually, you know what? We're not done yet. I have a special surprise. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, what's is, that? It is for you, Paul, and uh, for our listeners. Okay. And I don't know. I just threw this together. Maybe this is dumb, but we'll see. So, Paul, we've joked a little bit before about, you know, I go through and edit all these episodes, and we joked about how it would be fun to grab some ums and uh, just kind of string them together and see what that sounded like, maybe. Okay. So... For the last several episodes, not, not all the ones that we've done, of course, but enough episodes, I grabbed a lot of uh, your ums. I didn't grab my ums. Of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, got a little something to play for you. Let's hear it. what do you think? Just just a few of my ums. Huh? <laughs> just a few. I didn't know I had such a range on my ums. Right? I was almost musical. Yeah. Um, I guess um, <laughs> that's all I got to say about that. All right. Well, speaking of musical, I got one more thing to play for you. Okay. See what you think of this. <laughs> I don't I don't like this one. <laughs> were these all the laughs that got yeah. cut? No, well, these are all in there. Okay. I just picked them. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this one goes for a while, huh? Just wait for it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you, you just cracked me up, bro. <laughs> I don't know. Just, anyways, just <laughs> and then just yeah, and then just play the music. <laughs> wow! All right. What do you think? What do you think? Is that too much? <laughs> that was borderline genius. I think. Thank you. I was almost about to start flowing. I was like, got my beat. <laughs> yeah, maybe we can turn that into a full fledged song. You can you can rap to it. We can put it on iTunes. All right. 
<laughs> I'm not a great singer and I'm even a worse rapper, but I'll try. It'll be fun. Collaborate. Cool. Our first single together. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for that. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I had fun making it. <laughs> what right. other weird thing, weird noises do I make? What's coming next? Paul clearing his throat montage. Oh, I guess I need to top that somehow. I don't know. I'll have to keep my ears open in the next 50 episodes, see what I can come up with. I'm sure there's some other weird noises escaping my mouth. (laughs) Sure. Maybe lip smacks. I could use that somehow. I feel like I do that more than you do, though. I start a lot of sentences with, so... (laughs) Grab all my hard S's. Oh, you can do that. All my my snaky S's. Yeah, S's could be fun. We'll see. Anyways. (laughs) Anyways. <laughs> anyway, I uh, hope you enjoyed our special 50th episode. If you want to reach out to us, you can send an email to feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. If you want to see some cool pictures, check out our Instagram, SJP Podcast. Our website is sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. And what's up uh, for episode 51, Paul? Cherry blossoms. Beautiful. They've become an integral part of Japanese society, or at least a very important part. Yeah, they've been a symbol of Japan for a long time, and it's kind of crazy the ways that cherry blossoms have been used in Japanese culture. Like, I mean, you can find them on anything and everything. Don't miss it. It's going to be great. It will. Thanks for listening. See you next time.